The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort is in the clear. He no longer has to worry about the threat of spending time in jail again. The Manhattan DA's attempt to bring a pardon-proof case against Manafort has been foiled by the state's top appeals court. Manafort was convicted of federal financial crime and illegal lobbying charges and sentenced in 2019 to seven and a half years in prison. But as Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance and others anticipated, Trump pardoned Manafort. Two lower courts in New York had previously ruled that Vance's case, which alleged mortgage fraud and other crimes, was so similar to the federal case that it was barred by the double jeopardy law. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, who teaches at Columbia Law School. The Constitution bars double jeopardy, but the Supreme Court has made an exception for federal and state crimes. Explain that. Well, I don't know that I would call it an exception. Basically, the double jeopardy premise is that you can't be tried twice for the same crime by the same government. So in the federal system, that means that, you know, if the U.S. attorney charges you for bank fraud, uh, they can't turn around and later charge you again for the same bank fraud, nor can another U.S. attorney charge you for that same bank fraud. But it doesn't apply to other governments. So You know, we certainly don't have any control over foreign governments, so the U.S. government can't stop, say, France from charging someone for a crime, even if it's been charged in the U.S. But similarly, under our federal system of government, the states are all separate sovereigns as well. So the double jeopardy prohibition on charging someone twice for the same crime doesn't apply to a state charge. So that's kind of generally speaking what the federal constitution prohibition on double jeopardy says. But in this case, New York had its own double jeopardy law. That's right. So, you know, all citizens are entitled to the protections of the U.S. Constitution. That's kind of the floor. That's the baseline. But states are also free in their own constitutions to give their own citizens more protections. And New York State is a state that does, in fact, give its citizens more protection than the federal constitution does in a whole bunch of areas. But one of those areas is in the double jeopardy context. So in New York state, it's not the case that if you are charged in a federal case uh, and you get to the jeopardy point, which is either a conviction or um, swearing in the jury at a trial, that you can be charged with that same crime in the state. In fact, You can't be except in certain limited circumstances. So in New York State, if you've been charged and convicted by the feds for specific conduct, you cannot be charged by the state unless an exception applies. If you could describe the charges that Vance brought and how he thought that they were different from the federal charges. 
Yeah, that's a really good question because when all of this was happening and he started to hear reporting that Syvance was going to bring charges, legal observers were talking about what are those charges going to look like? Clearly, he must have something different to charge, right? You know, it's generally speaking mortgage fraud, bank fraud types of charges, but a lot of us thought that, you know, maybe there were specific you know, reporting requirements in the state that maybe he filled out some false forms that are only chargeable in the state. You know, there are lots of those sorts of state crimes, books and records types of crimes that don't have a federal corollary. So a lot of us thought there would be something like that. But when the charges came out, they really weren't factually distinct from the federal charges. And so it was a little bit puzzling and you know, a lot of folks thought that, in fact, what ended up happening would happen, which is that those charges would be deemed too factually close to and indistinct from the federal charges, resulting in their rejection under the, the double jeopardy law. So when Vance brought those charges, as you mentioned, it was fairly clear that he was doing it because of the concern that Trump would pardon Manafort, which he did. But is there anything wrong with Vance's motivation there in bringing the charges? I don't think so. I mean, you know, the point is that if something is chargeable in the state, which bank fraud and mortgage fraud are chargeable in New York State if you have jurisdiction and venue over those offenses, the people of the state have an interest in seeing that those charges are brought and that you, if you do that crime in our state, are punished for that. So it's not that it's, it's, there's something wrong with him trying to vindicate the interests of the citizens of New York State. And, you know, in fact, this notion of being charged by the feds but then getting out of it via a pardon was deemed so problematic that the New York State legislature changed the law saying that that now is an exception. Like if you are charged but then pardoned federally, you now can be charged for that same conduct by the state. But that change was made too late to impact Manafort's case because the law is not retroactively applicable. So I don't think there's anything wrong as kind of an ethical matter with bringing the charges. The problem is they just didn't have enough of a distinct factual basis to get through the double jeopardy law as it existed then for Manafort without the pardon exception. Jennifer, in its order last week, the Court of Appeals, without explanation, just said it wouldn't hear Vance's appeal of the lower court decision. Is there anything that the the lower court judge or the appellate division said that struck you? Not really. I mean, they just rejected the notion that this was different enough. And, you know, I think the reaction of a lot of legal commentators was frustration, you know, that Vance brought a case that just wasn't strong enough. I mean, you know, not that people thought that, that he shouldn't be chargeable in the state, given that he's now gotten off scot-free on the federal side, but that there, you know, you really do have to comply with the law and bring something that's factually distinct enough. And unfortunately, they didn't have that case. And if you don't have the case, you shouldn't bring the case. So, you know, I, I didn't see a lot of complaints about what the judges did here, more just frustration that Vance thought something that at the end of the day wasn't going to succeed because they just didn't have enough of a distinct factual pattern here. 
And the fact that the state's highest court didn't take the case, what does it say that the court just turned this down and didn't allow an argument to be made? Well, the New York State Court of Appeals, which is our Supreme Court, they don't have to take every case. You know, there are some cases that they do have to consider, but a lot of their jurisdiction is, you know, they, they can take it if they, they want to take it. And cases that they want to take tend, tend to be things that they think are wrongly decided, right, that they're going to overturn or that involve a kind of a, a, an area of the law that requires clarification, that sort of thing. So if they see a case where they look at the decision below and they say, well, this decision was correct on the law, and it's not really a close call because the double jeopardy law is pretty clear about, you know, having to have a distinct factual basis, then we're not going to take it. I mean, why take it only to say, yeah, we agree, this is right. You know, it's not a novel area of the law. And, um, you know, so it says to me they didn't consider it to be a close case on the merits, and they didn't see anything else interesting or, or requiring explanation about the case. Um, so, you know, they agreed with the, the courts below. So it's fair. So is Manafort scot-free? Because I was reading that the language that was used in the pardons that Trump gave may not cover everything. Yeah, so that, that's an interesting issue. So Andrew Weissman, who is um, one of uh, the Mueller team lawyers, one of the prosecutors who, who um, was on Mueller's team and, and charged and, and tried these matters, uh, wrote that the pardon that Manafort received is very specific. It only applies to the crimes with which he was charged and, and convicted. And so that potentially leaves additional conduct that's chargeable by the federal authorities because, you know, you don't always charge someone with everything that you know they did. And certainly they're not always convicted of everything that you know they did, right? So Andrew says that there's some conduct out there that could be charged by DOJ again. Now, even if that's true, it's really hard to imagine that the Biden Justice Department is going to charge Paul Manafort again for some of this leftover conduct. Um, but Andrew Weissman's view is that technically it's possible. So, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see when Merrick Garland gets into his position and, and they start to consider not just Manafort, but all of these other Trump world people um, who have outstanding criminal conduct, you know, whether they're going to pursue that or not. I remember Weissman also saying that they also levied some civil penalties, high civil penalties that he would have to pay. So at least there would be some measure of justice and some punishment for Manafort because everyone anticipated that Trump would pardon Manafort and everyone else associated with the Mueller investigation. Yeah, and I don't think it was a surprise to anyone that raft of pardons. I mean, Trump ended up pardoning literally every single figure charged in the um, Mueller investigation except for Rick Gates, who was the one person who truly did cooperate, signed a cooperation agreement, testified at trial, and, you know, didn't just kind of fake cooperate the way that, that Manafort did for a short time. So, um, you know, I think it's smart for prosecutors always to think two steps ahead and to try to cross charges in such a way and to add civil penalties in a way that insulate them from what was really a, an inappropriate pardon by the president shortly before he leaves office. 
Trump also, in a last-minute pardon, and really a last-minute pardon, he pardoned Steve Bannon. And Vance is reportedly exploring a case against Bannon. Will that pardon have any effect on Bannon being tried by New York? So it's really interesting. So Jeopardy has not yet attached for Steve Bannon because it doesn't attach until either a guilty plea or the jury is sworn in a trial. So there's nothing to stop New York state authorities from charging him. But the wrinkle is that uh, former President Trump pardoned Steve Bannon only and not any of his three co-defendants. So the criminal case, the federal criminal case against his co-defendants continues and is set for trial, you know, I don't know when it's set for trial, but it is coming up at some point. And so that complicates things a little bit, because typically prosecutors don't want to have the same evidence and the same witnesses being used at the same time in a proceeding in federal court, and then also you'll have an investigation and ultimately charges in state court. So they're going to have to sort out amongst themselves, you know, this kind of evidence sharing and and which investigation is going to go first and whether he can be charged before the the federal trial happens and so on. Um, But I do expect that given the nature of the conduct and the nature of the proof, which seems very strong, that Steve Bannon will eventually, perhaps after the federal trial is over, be charged in the state with the conduct that he was pardoned for. What's his connection to the state? Does he live here? I don't know where Steve Bannon lives, but one of, I believe one of the defendants was based in Westchester, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And in any sort of cyber scheme where you have victims that you're reaching out to on the internet and asking them to contribute money and they're giving you money, there's almost certain to be jurisdiction just about everywhere, to be honest with you, because undoubtedly some of the victims of the scheme would have been in New York State and would have given money. And the defendants would have reached out to residents of New York State as part of their scheme itself to gather the money. So um, I'm not exactly sure of connections between the defendants and the state, but certainly given, you know, the the, the outreach of of cyber communications and where the victims are likely to be based, there will be jurisdiction in New York State. Thanks, Jennifer. That's Jennifer Rogers, who teaches at Columbia Law School. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. It was day two of former President Donald Trump's impeachment trial. House impeachment manager Jamie Raskin of Maryland started the proceedings. Raskin said new evidence would be presented that would prove that Trump incited his mob of supporters to storm the Capitol and derail the proceedings to certify the Electoral College result. The evidence will be for you to see and hear and digest. The evidence will show you that ex-President Trump was no innocent bystander. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. Michael, what do you see as the broad strategy of the House managers here? The broad strategy of the House managers seems to be to lay the foundation for their brick-by-brick building of a case starting essentially before the election even took place, where Trump is saying 
we can only lose by fraud. Moving into the post-election period where he did lose, and then he said, you see, it's fraud, just as I told you. Then his efforts to undermine and change the results of those elections in various states, finally and culminating in January 6th and the protests and the violence. And the key language that they say over and over is what happened on January 6th was predictable and foreseeable, the result of a month-long campaign to achieve what they achieved, which was an effort to stop the certification of the vote on January 6th. So is that the most difficult part of their case, actually linking Trump to the attack on the Capitol? Well, it's difficult only in the sense that there will be a false First Amendment defense that will be laid out, which says essentially what he said on January 6th is protected First Amendment speech. What Jamie Raskin started today with by saying that just doesn't apply. It is not what he's on trial for. But I think because it is the culminating act, they need to establish this foundation to show that that was really not what he is on trial for alone, but rather that that is part of a larger mosaic of activity that he engaged in, which he knew what would be the result of. And in fact, it was the result of it. Well, at this point, we don't know if they're going to have witnesses. But what they're doing is they're methodically playing video and they're putting up stills of tweets. How effective are the tweets of rioters in showing that they were following Trump? Well, I think that it again goes to the foreseeability of what they are trying to prove, which is to say these people knew that they were only there because Trump told them to be there. And Trump was able to predict and foresee that they would show up because he has been for months encouraging them to show up. And so I think that it sort of dovetails with the presentation that one, Trump is responsible to this. And two, you can take that as true from the words of the people who actually went there because he told them to go there. I had not heard this before, but they said today that he spent some $50 million on ads running right up to January 5th. That seems like it's a powerful piece of evidence. Exactly. And I think that there will be an investigation or there should be an investigation of this money trail. Remember, my background as a prosecutor was as a money laundering prosecutor. When I heard that accusation that there was $50 million spent in the run-up to the January 6th event and to get people to the January 6th event, I want to see who, who raised that money, how was it raised, who spent it, why were they there, because I think that that is also powerful evidence of a premeditated plan orchestrated by Trump and a group of people working with Trump to create this January 6th riot. I think it's very important evidence. We'll see whether they have it yet, but if we don't, I think ultimately we will see that. Who do you think would investigate that? Because it doesn't seem as if Biden's Justice Department is interested in pursuing Trump and relitigating it. Well, the Federal Election Commission, one, has a duty to obtain information with respect to anything that's campaign 
related. And so there may be campaign finance reasons for the Federal Election Commission to look into it. There may be violations of state laws around elections that state prosecutors will look into. And I'm not so sure after the dust settles and Merrick Garland is in his uh, position that prosecutors are not going to be allowed to investigate crimes that occurred in their jurisdiction. So I wouldn't say for sure that the Biden administration is not going to free prosecutors to look at possible criminal activity in their jurisdiction as time passes. So what do you think is the hardest part of the House manager's case? Well, the hardest thing they have to do is convince the Republican senators to listen because there's been reports many of the senators are not even paying attention. Yesterday they said Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley and others are doing other things. So part of it is to obtain their attention. But I think the hardest thing for them to, to, to prove is what they are trying to prove, which is this is not a one-off, one-hour speech by Trump, but rather this is a fully orchestrated, months-long effort that January 6th was the foreseeable and predictable outcome of, and therefore he's responsible. Because if it's just one day, one speech, then I think it gives his attorneys an opportunity to, as I say, falsely argue First Amendment and lack of foreseeability, and he had no intention to incite. But the longer the case goes, and the more they can establish this timeline that starts before the election, where he says it's only going to be lost if there's fraud, up until his speech on January 6th, where he then essentially blows the whistle and says, charge, I think they have a strongest case by that. And that's not a simple case to make, but that's their strongest argument. Reportedly, Senator Lindsey Graham told Trump after the first day that it's over now, the trial is over, and you're going to be acquitted. I can't imagine how they feel, the House managers. When you're a prosecutor, if you went into a courtroom thinking that the jury was against you, I mean, it'd be hard to put on the case. Well, it is, yes. And, I mean, the history of civil rights litigation, um, where they were charging people with violating civil rights workers' rights, and they were losing to all white juries, had to be very distressing. But I think in this case, you have a trial that really is to the American public and to history. So I think that these House managers know that even if they don't obtain a conviction, even if they can't convince 17 Republicans, their broader audiences, the American people, and history so that it is documented what Trump and his allies did and how they brought that to light. I think that there's something that is very compelling for a prosecutor to say, win or lose, I'm fighting the good fight. Actually, I think it was quite a victory yesterday when a Louisiana senator who hadn't voted against the jurisdictional issue when Rand Paul brought it up, when they got him to vote for jurisdiction. That was a victory of sorts. No question. Whenever you can convince somebody who has voted against you in one vote to vote in your favor a second vote, that's that's a victory. The thing that is interesting to me is to keep an eye on McConnell. He's been quiet. He made comments early on that he thought Trump was responsible for this. He voted yesterday against moving forward. But he may have done that 
you know, for reasons that don't relate to how he's going to vote on the merits of the case. I still think as he goes, goes the outcome of this trial. I think he's the linchpin that many senators are looking for his nod of approval to, to, to vote. Someone said, and I think it's probably right, that were this a secret ballot, Trump would probably lose 70 to 80 votes uh, to convict. But because it's not a secret ballot and because these senators primarily are concerned about their political career and their well-being and not America and not its history and not the rule of law and all that stuff, we're in this situation of only six voting to convict. So now what can the defense do to counter the House argument? What I think the defense is going to try to do is to say all the president did was to make a speech, a one-hour speech on January 6th, which is protected by the First Amendment, and that the actions of the mob who stormed the Capitol were not foreseeable by him, was not intended by him, and was just on them by themselves without any culpability for him. I think the more noise that they can make that all Trump did was what he was allowed to do under law. That is, he's allowed to bring lawsuits. He is allowed to ask the senators to exercise their power to contest the certification on January 6th. He is allowed, as a matter of free speech, to speak to whomever he wants to in state legislatures about whether there was election fraud, and that his speech was not inciting, but rather was just rhetoric that is normal in the political discourse. I think you'll see a lot of sort of false equivalencies. They will say, well, Maxine Waters said this. How is it if she said that she's not on trial, but our guy is on trial? So there's going to be a lot of effort, I think, to say this speech was hyperbolic, but but First Amendment protected. I think that's what they'll try to say. Uh, you know, it's very hard to know what they'll do after listening to their opening arguments yesterday because they were incoherent, loud and incoherent. So it's pretty hard to know what their strategy is. But if I were representing the president in this case, I would try to say that everything that he did was lawful. He had a right to allege election fraud. He had a right to contest in the courts these elections. He had a right to make that speech. And the outcome of that event, the series of events, was unforeseeable to him. And so as terrible as it was. A lot of people are saying, well, they have to prove, you know, he had the intent, etc. But this isn't a criminal trial. Do they really have to meet some kind of burden of proof? Well, they have to prove their case. That is, they have to prove what they allege in their article of impeachment, which is that he incited an insurrection and he did so by a, a course of conduct that took place over many months. So yes, they have a burden of proving their case. What is the false analogy is to a criminal trial. And why I say there's a false First Amendment defense here. In a criminal trial, a First Amendment defense is the First Amendment protects me from being criminally prosecuted for words out of my mouth absent some imminent, clear, and present danger that these words create. In an impeachment trial, because there is no criminal penalty, that First Amendment 
defense really doesn't apply. But I think that that's what they will continue to try and do. And I think the House managers have to continue to say, it's not about that. Don't be misled. This is about a months-long, brick-by-brick campaign that culminated on January 6th, didn't start and end on January 6th. So we don't know about witnesses. And I understand that they're trying to use the video and the tweets instead of witness testimony. But what seems to be missing, and they refer to the reports that Trump was gleeful hearing about this and why he waited until he stepped in, don't they really need someone in order to make the case, a full case, need someone to talk about how Trump reacted to the violence? I think how Trump reacted to the violence and the delayed response, calling it to an end, is very important evidence. It's not clear to me, though, how they get that, because it seems to me that from what we've been hearing about in the press, the only ones who know that are Trump inner circle people, chief of staff Mark Meadows, his children, and others who were invited by him to watch the videotapes, Jared and Ivanka and the likes. And so I don't know exactly how you get that. I don't think they'll come voluntarily. If you were to subpoena them, then you're in this courtroom fight over executive privilege and the trial gets delayed forever and ever. But absolutely right. If there is somebody who can say, I was there and I saw his reaction, or I'm one of the people who was calling and calling and calling and couldn't get his attention, I think that would be powerful evidence. And I think that that latter group, they may get. They may get people who have told them about what their efforts were to get Trump's attention, and they couldn't get it. I think we may hear that, but I don't know that we're going to get a live witness who can testify uh, to that. But I think you're, you're spot on in your evaluation. That would be very compelling evidence. So finally, compare this impeachment trial to the last impeachment trial. We're only uh, two days in, but still. The first Trump impeachment trial was a little bit, you know, esoteric in a sense that you had a a phone call with a partial transcript where the words weren't, you know, very clear and you could read into them in different ways. And it was not a simple sort of blood and gut case. It's much easier to prosecute sort of a street crimes case where there's blood, guts, and gore, all that stuff, than it is a financial crimes case where it's just a lot of paper. I think the first case was a lot more sort of paper-ish in a sense, this opaque phone call. And this one is really a, a blood, sweat, and tears sort of case where we see the video of what's going on. And the key witness in this trial so far has been Donald Trump and the words out of his mouth, both orally and in uh, tweets. And remember, we have to say about tweets is that the president said early on in his administration that tweets are official presidential communication. They are not simply the midnight ramblings of, of a private citizen. These are official government documents. So when he says something in the tweet, it is an official statement of the president of the United States. Thanks, Michael. That's Michael Zeldin. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.